Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 262. It's titled, Better, Not Bigger, Circular, Not Linear. What am I talking about? Well, we're talking about how the global economy and our personal economy is evolving, where everything doesn't have to be about growth in terms of getting bigger, nor does everything have to be sort of this upward straight line. I thought about this as I read Paul Jarvis's book, Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. And he was talking about one-person business, something like I run. He mentioned that he lives in British Columbia on the coast, and he surfs every day. He was out surfing with his accountant, and his accountant said, I'm stoked. I just about made enough to take the rest of the year off to go rock climbing. The year's only eight months in, and he says he's done. He's made it all. Jarvis was sort of shocked by this, wasn't sure quite what he meant. And the accountant explained that he had calculated what he needed, how much profit did he need in order to cover his cost of living and to put a decent amount away for savings. And once he reached that point, he felt he had enough. He didn't want to grow to be a bigger company, to open up offices, hire more employees. Jarvis says his focus in his business was being better not growing bigger. This idea of of continuing to grow bigger, and I saw this as an investment advisor. We wanted to make our investment firm bigger over time so everyone could make more money. We can give out bigger raises. But there's a way to grow bigger without necessarily growing revenue, selling more stuff. Stan Stallmaker wrote an article back in 2009 in the Harvard Business Review. It was titled, The Next Evolution in Economics, Rethinking Growth. He writes, growth becomes one of several life cycle stages that are primarily about replenishment. Instead of growing in size and scope, companies grow in capabilities, processes, and offerings. New ones come along. Old ones die. Just like cells, growth becomes regenerative. Only what needs replacing is replaced, reducing waste and improving society along the way. He gives an example of a brewery in India that is taking chaff and grain, sort of waste products from the brewing process to create fertilizer and biofuels. He mentions the Swiss wood furniture maker Katika that is reforesting at a rate greater than what it produces. I recently got an email from a woman who is the senior director of design at a large luggage maker. 
And in her work, she says she's actively pursuing a way to address the linear petrochemical conversion model under the thumb of which almost all of our consumer goods are produced today. It's linear. Inputs go in, outputs, they make luggage, and then when the luggage is done, you throw it away when it wears out. It's a very linear process. Now, she says she's had some success with getting the adoption of recycled polyesters into their lines. But she's thinking linear. How can this be regenerative? She sent me a paper by Closed Loop Partners. It was titled Accelerating Circular Supply Chains for Plastics. The listener that sent me this paper listened to it live, the live presentation, and was profoundly impacted by it. She says, it was the first time for me I was listening to a qualified person backed by some huge industry players, such as Google, speaking about actual financial opportunities via investment in closed-loop technologies for plastic and petrochemical feedstocks. Closed-loop partner, they're an investment firm, and they're focused on building a circular economy. They point out that the linear patterns of consumption have been great in that we have these big petrochemical pipelines and it gets brought down into single-use plastic that's cheap and efficient. But they point out now we need to go from this recycled plastic back to the pipe where the plastics are made. It's circular as opposed to just going from making it, using it, and disposing it in the landfill. Right now, when you look at plastic, 90% ends up in the landfill or incinerated. We're certainly recycling some. One of the problems is the recycled plastic in its current form just often doesn't perform as well as prime or virgin plastic. And it's expensive. The whole process now for recycling plastic, reconstituting it, and using it again cost up to $1,000 per ton. It's much more expensive than just buying new plastic. So in the paper, they go over 60 different technology providers. Purification process in terms of cleaning the plastic, technologies related to that. The decomposition, breaking it down in terms of the molecular bonds. Or conversion, breaking it down into hydrocarbons that could be used in petrochemicals. But the idea is a circular process, regeneration, going from linear to circular. And we need to in our global economy. I've mentioned E.F. Schumacher in the past. He wrote the book Small is Beautiful back in the early 70s. He writes, from an economic viewpoint, the central concept of wisdom is permanence. We must study the economics of permanence. Nothing makes economic sense unless its continuance for a long time can be projected without running into absurdities. There can be growth towards a limited objective, but there cannot be unlimited generalized growth. There's limits to growth. Constraints. What are they? Kate Raworth, her book is titled Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think like a 21st century economist. And it's this idea of a circular economy that there's constraints. She writes, worldwide, one person in nine does not have enough to eat. One in four lives on less than $3 a day. One in eight young people cannot find work. 
one person in three still has no access to a toilet, and one in 11 has no source of safe drinking water. One child in six, aged 12 to 15, is not in school, the vast majority of them girls. It is extraordinary that such deprivations in life's essentials continue to limit the potential of so many people's lives in the 21st century. On the other hand, she points out that humanity has, at the same time, been putting on Earth's life-giving systems unprecedented stress. In fact, she continues, we have transgressed at least four planetary boundaries. Those of climate change, land conversion, nitrogen and phosphorus loading, and biodiversity loss. Billions of people don't have what they need, and yet if they're provided what they need in the same way that the developed world provides things people need, then you run into the constraint of the planet's capacity in terms of climate change, pollution, these huge algae fields in the oceans. That's what she means by a donut economy, that you have this inner circle of the needs of society, housing, energy, water, food, health, education. And the goal is to provide that for everyone, while at the same time not breaching the ecological ceiling of ocean acidification, chemical pollution, nitrogen and phosphorus loading, biodiversity loss, air pollution. There's constraints. And that's why it needs to be circular. The economy needs to be regenerative. Now, certainly that can be addressed in industry and these regenerative processes to better use recycled resources such as plastic. But I think about it more on a personal level. She writes, imagine then if ours could be the turnaround generation that started putting humanity on track for that future. What if each were to mentally map our own lives, asking ourselves, how does the way that I shop, eat, travel, earn a living, bank, vote, and volunteer affect my personal impact on social and planetary boundaries. Eof Schutmacher says the aim should be to obtain the maximum of well-being with the minimum of consumption. How can we be regenerative in terms of what we're doing and not just trying to grow bigger in terms of make more and more money, but find more well-being without necessarily spending more? Part of that is controlling what we aspire to. Steve Fuller, the philosopher, writes about adaptive preferences, which he describes when we bend aspiration towards expectation in light of experience, we come to want what we think is within our grasp. More than a simple reality check, adaptive preference formation involves disciplining one's motivational structure with the benefit of hindsight. Much of what passes for wisdom in life is about the formation of adaptive preferences. In other words, what we prefer, what we aspire to, we can discipline that. I've seen this in my life recently. In episode 146, three years ago, it was titled, How to Decide What to Buy. I talked about buying a used 2013 BMW 650i. It is by far the biggest money mistake in terms of purchases I've ever made. I regretted it then, but I was kind of stuck with it. But I aspired to it. I wanted a fast car. And I needed a car, so I bought it. I've kept it three years. I've put 28,000 miles on it. I've paid $1.25 a mile. That is super expensive. The depreciation on this, this was a used car. It's depreciated significantly. 
And it hasn't been enjoyable because it has consistently had drivetrain malfunctions. If I speed up to pass somebody, I get a drivetrain malfunction. I have to pull over and turn the car on and off. And I was out fishing a week or so ago, and it happened again. It hadn't happened in a while. And then it started happening again. And now the car was out of warranty. So I would be paying to try to fix a problem that BMW has never been able to fix. I traded it in. I went to the Toyota dealership and I told them, here's what's wrong. Here's what I'm facing. I want to get rid of this. I traded it in for a Prius, a hybrid. Gets much better gas mileage, but it got me thinking. I've changed what I aspire to. Now my goal is to figure out how do I drive a car for less than $1.25 a mile, or better yet, not drive one at all. My daughter's going to take the Prius to her studies at university. So we'll just have one car, and for a while, maybe I'll Uber or Lyft. I tried a Lyft scooter this past weekend in San Diego. Now, it ended up costing me $2.68 per mile, and Uber runs about 2 to $3 per mile, which is obviously more expensive than the $1.25 I paid per mile for the BMW, and that was all in. That's included insurance, gasoline, depreciation on the car. I can't ride 28,000 miles on Uber. It'd be very expensive. I'd have to cut back on how much I travel. I had a profound experience also in San Diego. I test drove a Tesla Model 3. Before I tell you about that test drive, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David. netsuite.com slash David. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I've ridden and driven a Tesla before, my friends, back probably been three or four years ago. But this was their new model, all-wheel drive, long range. And I texted my family that it felt 
like driving the future. It was so fast in terms of the pickup. It felt faster than the BMW I just got rid of. We tried this self-driving aspect on the highway. It felt solid, and it's electric. We went through the cost. What would it cost to lease this thing? Total cost to lease it for 36 months, 36,000 miles, with the payments, the down payment is about $25,000. I assume another $2,700 for insurance, and it cost about one kilowatt hour for four miles. If we assume an expensive 24 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity, that's about six cents a mile to drive it. You don't have to put gas. There's way less parts when it comes to electric vehicle in terms of things breaking, but this would be under warranty. But all in was about 29,860 for 36 months, 83 cents a mile, much cheaper than that used BMW and much more fun. The well-being was much better. Now, there are way cheaper ways for cars. The Prius is going to be much cheaper than the Tesla over its life cycle. Because I've calculated this for well over a decade, how much we spend per mile on cars. Many have been under 30 cents a mile. I did lease a BMW once. It was close to 60 to 70 cents a mile. Nothing was close to $1.25 a mile. That's why that BMW 650 was the biggest mistake in terms of transportation I've ever made. Just way too expensive. This transition, this energy transition is happening. And I saw that driving the Model 3. What I aspire to as our culture changes, what people want in a car is changing. It's making for a more regenerative economy. Combined, wind and solar in the U.S. provide about 10.6% of U.S. electricity. That's through the first five months of 2019. It's 20% renewables in California. And I got this information from an email newsletter I subscribed to by Gregor McDonald. And he's been studying this energy transition for many years now. In that newsletter, he pointed out that the Western Farmers Electric Cooperative of Oklahoma announced a 700-megawatt triple hybrid project. has wind, solar, and energy storage. Because batteries, which are key to electric cars, are getting cheaper. Bloomberg News Energy Finance reports that lithium-ion battery costs have fallen 35% from the first half of 2018 to the first half of 2019. When you look at an electric vehicle, you want to see now how much energy is used per mile. Outside of California, it's 2,468 BTUs, British thermal units, per mile. In California, because they get 20% of their energy through renewables, it's 2,028 BTUs per mile. Now, this is sort of everything it takes to build the car, drive the car, energize the car in terms of electricity or gas. And this is data that Gregor McDonald calculated. It's called well-to-wheel accounting. For an internal combustion engine, the average is 5,511 BTUs per mile. So electric vehicles are half. And what this is known as is energy intensity. How much energy consumption in BTUs is required per unit of gross domestic product? 
GDP, which is the measure of output. An economy that is becoming more efficient in terms of energy intensity is using less units of energy for each dollar of goods produced. And that trend is down. A chart by the EIA shows that the energy intensity has dropped by almost a third since 1990. We are using less energy to produce GDP. Less energy is being consumed to achieve well-being. It's changing. The economy is changing that way. Driving an electric vehicle isn't sacrificing well-being. It's a better experience than driving an internal combustion engine. And yet it uses less resources. It's less energy intensive. And that's not the only area. There was an article in the Financial Times recently by Nick Butler titled, Off-Grid Electricity is Reaching into Their Modest Homes. The article pointed out, estimates by the World Bank, 840 million people still have no access to electricity. And 3 billion rely on polluting fuels such as wood and dung to heat their homes and cook their food. Yet in the same article, it points out that sales of solar home systems have increased by 77% last year and 133% since 2016. 108 million households globally are using solar. We have solar at our cabin. We haven't had to pay in the past year any electricity cost. Now, we've had to pay propane for some of the heating. But the article pointed out that you can get a bare-bones solar home system that provides four hours of power a day for $100 to $300. It's cheap. Now, out of reach still of many of the poor, but renewables are going to transform energy consumption also. And these same transformations can occur in plastic and the other consumer goods that are produced we hopefully can make adjustments as a society, but more importantly, individually, as we think about the impact of what we buy, that we will not breach the ecological ceiling because we're going to have to rethink it as those that are in extreme poverty want and should want more and more. And it requires us to think about those in developed countries, what it is that we want. We need to change what we aspire to. If we're going to maximize our well-being with the minimum of consumption, perhaps how we judge well-being can change a little bit. And we can change. The culture can change. I've been reading off and on a memoir by Steve Russian called Stingray Afternoons. I like it because he grew up in the Midwest about the same time I did. And he pointed out that litter, litter was a huge issue back in the late 60s. Well, it's still an issue. But in 1969, 20 million pieces of litter were loosed on the streets of the U.S. that year. Half the population admitted that they intentionally littered. One family cleaned up four and a half miles of Highway 162 in Wisconsin. This is spring of 1970. They collected 389 pounds of litter. Now, I remember being young and that you just that's what you did. You littered, but it changed. The Keep America Beautiful campaign came out, funded by corporations with public service announcements. 
from 1968, 40 years later, the amount of litter in the U.S. decreased by 61% nationwide. We changed our behavior. It wasn't the natural impulse to litter. There's an academic paper I'll link to titled Littering in Context, Personal and Environmental Predictors of Littering Behavior. And they studied, this is from 2013, they studied 8,900 individuals to see what they did. 4% littered, only 4%. Now, not everyone had something to throw away because they're just observing people all over the country in different spots. Those that actually had something to dispose, 17% littered. Not more than half like it used to be. It was only 17%. And they looked at why they littered and their behaviors. One of the challenges is that 65% of smokers threw their cigarette butt on the ground and littered. But the point is, as a culture, we have changed when it comes to litter. And as a culture, we can change when it comes to consumption. When it comes to energy consumption. When it comes to deciding why we buy what we buy. William Coperthwaite wrote A Handmade Life in Search of Simplicity. He was a philosopher, a writer, but he also pioneered yurt building in the U.S. He writes, most of us enjoy having fine things. How we define fine is going to affect greatly whether we live lives of quiet exploitation or of fairness. For instance, having a fine house can be a matter of status, of expense, of extravagance, or it can mean having the best house for you and your needs. A home that you design and build. A home that is fine because it is simply just right. We're going to have to change, in some ways, what we decide is beautiful. He points out that much of beauty is in the mind. That the marketplace peddles the current concept of beauty. So they can create more products. They're always coming up with new ways. You need this. You should aspire to this. He writes, if we encourage our own sense of beauty to develop rather than follow the market and fashion, we can live both beautifully and simply. And he points out that much of what is considered beautiful has come at a large cost to the environment and society. He gives a yardstick where he says, that which deprives another cannot be beautiful. It's getting easier. There's more transparency with what we buy. We can see where our products come from. More importantly, we have a greater desire to know. We're understanding our connection of just not buying the cheapest thing, but to want to know what's its pedigree? Where did it come from? What was the environmental cost? So we want to know where it came from, and we're changing what we aspire to. Tim Jackson, The Economist, wrote, We are persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to make impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. I think that's changing. I think we're changing. It'll happen at industry as we go to a more circular economy. And it should happen with us personally as we seek to become better and not grow at all costs. Pearl and I are in the process of selling our house in Idaho Falls. We're trying to reduce our footprint. Now, we're experimenting because we, as you know, we have multiple homes. We have a cabin. We have a place in Phoenix. Here's my theory. Not living in Phoenix during the summer, we have to run the air conditioner all the time. In July, we used 350 kilowatts at our property in Phoenix. We're using just a couple kilowatts a day at our cabin. 
And so the idea is that if you locate where the climate is better, so you don't have to expend so much energy, that overall, and if you have a smaller footprint in each house, then your overall consumption, your intensity will decrease. That's the theory. That's what we're trying to practice. And part of that is selling our house in Idaho Falls, where the carbon footprint of the house, by shifting more time into the cabin, we cut our carbon footprint by about two-thirds in terms of the amount of energy we use, because that, that's a bigger house. But when we start thinking like this at an individual level, that will change society. That'll change the culture. That's episode 262. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email those show notes to you, as well as an essay I do each week on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do just goes to that email list, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is just general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.